0: On this episode of Newt's World, when Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24th, the entire world let out a huge gasp. Since then, every allied country in the West has been scrambling to come up with a plan as to how to deal with Russian President Vladimir Putin's invasion without escalating things further. Last week, I released a podcast episode entitled Understanding Putin because I think it's critical we understand who Putin is and who we're dealing with. And I drew directly from the long speech he had made to the Russian people. One of my biggest concerns now is the fact that Putin has put Russia's nuclear forces on alert. And I think this is a direct challenge to the West and to the United States and President Biden. And I noticed that President Biden had said Americans didn't need to worry about a nuclear war with Russia. And I just wanted to have this conversation because I think every American should be worried As long as there are nuclear weapons in the world, they are the most immediate threat to our survival as a species and as a civilization. I think that it's a very important topic. I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Joe Cirincione. He is a Quincy Institute Distinguished Fellow and the author of both Nuclear Nightmares, Securing the World Before It Is Too Late, and Bomb Scare, The History and Future of Nuclear Weapons. Joe, thank you for joining me on this topic. And let me start with your own background, because you have a very interesting and very practical involvement in thinking about nuclear weapons. How did you get interested in this topic?
1: Actually, it was the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan that got me interested in this topic, because I became convinced back in 1979, when I was just applying to graduate school that we might be at the cusp of world war three and you may remember the concerns in the late 70s early 80s about this and i shared those concerns that a conflict with the soviet union might quickly escalate to the nuclear level i went to georgetown to graduate school to pursue my studies and that was 40 years ago and i never left I then went to work in the Congress on the House Armed Services Committee and then the Government Operations Committee, and I was assigned nuclear weapons as part of my portfolio. So that's where I really learned nuclear doctrine, weapons contracts, deployments, NATO strategy. And I've been working in the field ever since at think tanks as head of a philanthropy, the Plowshares Fund, for about 12 years, and now back to being an expert.
0: I was going to say, in between, you also were advising, I think, President Obama's team On some of this,
1: I was part of the national security team for the Obama campaign and helped develop the nuclear strategy that he brought into the White House. I
0: share your concerns. I was deeply affected by a book called Tomorrow, which was a description of a nuclear weapon going off over Kansas City. My dad was a career soldier, and it was sufficiently vivid that I thought, you know, this would really be, in many ways, the end of our world. And so I've been concerned ever since. So let me start at the most basic, which is psychological. To what degree do you think Putin is simply signaling when he orders his nuclear weapons systems to go on what he called an active alert? And to what degree do you think he's actually inching towards potentially using
1: them? I think most of the commentary you've heard about this deals with it at that level. At the sort of nuclear theoretical level, where we have something called nuclear signaling, where countries will use threats of nuclear use to signal their intent. And that is certainly part of what's going on. I mean, clearly, Putin wants the West to back off. We often think about nuclear weapons as providing stability, as sort of keeping the peace, preventing conventional wars from happening. But here we have an instance where nuclear weapons are being used by Putin as a shield. He's using nuclear weapons to enable a conventional conflict, and he's warning the West to back off. But there are also real-world consequences to his announcement. And I have to be honest, the Russian command and control system is a bit opaque. They don't really publish a lot on this. It's not exactly clear what's going on. And the term he used isn't one that most of us are familiar with. But there are basically four levels to nuclear alert status in Russian doctrine. And he appears to have raised it from the day-to-day level, which is called constant, up to the next level, which is called elevated. It's not clear that he's done this, but here's what we think has happened. In its basic day-to-day operations, the nuclear command and control system as a mechanism is blocked from implementing a launch order. A launch order, if given, would not be connected to the nuclear command forces. The wires aren't connected. And what Putin appears to have done is basically enable that connection. He's taken the safety off the nuclear gun. So now it is ready to fire. A launch order from him would be implemented And this has two consequences. One is it raises the possibility of launch by accident or miscalculation, something that has plagued us throughout the nuclear age. We came very close during the Cold War several times to war by accident. But it also raises the possibility that he could do it, that in an act of desperation that he might decide that he needs to use a nuclear weapon To prevent his defeat. A defeat by Putin's forces in Ukraine was something that none of us thought possible four days ago, but it is definitely in the realm of possibility now. And that should worry all of us.
0: What I'm struck by is that, first of all, you could imagine a circumstance, and I think this was a one-time Soviet doctrine, where he could decide just to use a single tactical nuclear weapon in order to totally intimidate the Ukrainians and say, I'm prepared now. I'm going to use it on a very small town, but I'm prepared to use it on Kharkiv and on Kiev if you guys don't surrender. There was a brutality to Soviet doctrine, which I think grew out of their experience of World War II. When you lose 30 million people and you end up with fights like Stalingrad, which should, by the way, Stalingrad and Leningrad, those two sieges, should have been warnings to Putin, that you get involved in cities, and it becomes a nightmare. I mean, if the Ukrainians' nerve doesn't break, their capacity to absorb a lot of Russian troops in a place like Kiev is just enormous.
1: Well, you're absolutely right about Soviet strategy, but it's also Russian strategy. Again, it's not clear if this is official Russian doctrine, but there have been several articles by Russian military officers and those in the defense ministry about a strategy they call escalate to deescalate. And they're concerned about their conventional inferiority versus the West. And the strategy is similar to what the NATO forces had against the Warsaw Pact in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, that if the Warsaw Pact were to power through the Fulda gap with tank divisions, we would have to use nuclear weapons first to defeat those forces. This is a variation on that kind of idea knowing that they're inferior to US and NATO conventional forces, if they are losing a conventional conflict, the argument goes, they will use a nuclear weapon first to signal their seriousness and the stakes in this. And they believe that will cause the West to back off. Now, I don't think that is what the West would do. But you can see right away, you are really rolling the nuclear dice here by that first use and that the possibility that the U.S. or NATO would answer in kind and then we're off to the races.
0: Yeah, I had somebody I worked with who had been an Army colonel who had been assigned to talk with the former Soviet leadership in that brief period right after the collapse of the empire. And he talked with a senior Soviet general who said one of their plans, if we did in fact end up in a war with NATO was to have 36 nuclear weapons go off in Hamburg in order to communicate the intensity of their determination. Now, since one nuclear weapon would have eliminated Hamburg, this was clearly a psychological signaling theory. And you can imagine, I mean, Putin is sitting there by himself, apparently, with almost no officials who can advise him whose advice he'll listen to. And Really, I suspect right now feeling humiliated that this was supposed to be a walkover. The Ukrainians were supposed to collapse. It was supposed to be easy. The world was supposed to not be able to react because it would be so fast. And every single part of their plan now is in a mess.
1: Yes. So you have a frustrated, humiliated, angry megalomaniac who has the ability to launch one or a thousand nuclear weapons, and they would go off within about 20 minutes of his order. We've been talking a lot about whether he will do this, but we should focus just on the fact that he could do this, that we've allowed it to get to this point where one madman could end human civilization.
0: When I was teaching, I would do a sequencing where I would say, okay, at this moment, And ICBM left mine at North Dakota. And I'd walk them through 28 minutes for the delivery. I think we're now so far away from the thinking of the Cold War and so far away from having to deal with a grim reality that we're sort of coasting mentally, I think. And that worries me a lot, including all of the Western leadership, which is, I think, presuming that this is a conventional world. And yet, the one characteristic that Putin has that no other country has except us is a massive number of nuclear weapons. I mean, even the Chinese have a modest nuclear force compared to the Russian system.
1: Let's just put that in perspective. The Chinese have about 300 nuclear weapons, about 100 of which can reach us on their long-range ballistic missiles. And they have long considered that to be what they call minimum deterrence, that that would deter us from attacking them. And they're right. (laughs) It does. (laughs) You know, it does. Because one nuclear weapon on one American city would be a catastrophe beyond our experience. 10 nuclear weapons on 10 American cities would be a level of destruction beyond human history. And 100 nuclear weapons is unthinkable. I mean, it certainly would eliminate the United States as a functioning nation. And now they're talking about increasing that force and maybe doubling it, tripling it even. Well, Russia has 6,000 nuclear weapons, about 2,000 in what they call you know, operational status, ready to go. About 1,000 of those can be launched within minutes. So this is a force that could, within 28 minutes, wipe out everything that humanity has constructed over the millennia. It is an insane level of destructive force.
0: You know, I did a paper on this when I literally was a child. I was a sophomore in high school, and my dad was stationed at Stuttgart, which was the seventh Army headquarters. so their library was kind of extraordinary and I convinced one of my professors in high school to let me spend the entire year doing a paper on the balance of world power and He told me many years later he was so excited that any of his students would write anything that he was happy to have me go do this and I really came up with sort of a minimum deterrence argument that somewhere around 200 weapons. You, frankly, are killing everything you can plausibly kill. But what happened in part was you got into this counterforce doctrine that said we have to have enough surplus that even if you launch a first strike, we have guaranteed enough survival that we will be able to punish you so badly that it would be totally irrational to launch a first strike. And that then, particularly in the 60s and 70s, got to be a real arms race, as you know. And many of our listeners may not know. But there was also a period where very senior, very smart people spent an enormous amount of time thinking about this and were really worried about it. And we came reasonably close to a nuclear war over Cuba. There's an incident you might be able to explain far better than I could, where I think it was in 1983... We were engaged in a basically going through a drill, but the drill was so realistic that the Soviets actually thought we might be launching a first strike. And that may have been actually the closest we came to a truly disastrous exchange.
1: You're exactly right. We were, in effect, doing something that Putin just did. We were doing a major conventional NATO exercise but exercising the integration of nuclear forces with it. So firing nuclear-capable systems is part of that. Putin just did this the week before the invasion in his exercises in Belarus and Russia, where he tested seven different types of nuclear-capable systems. But at that time, the Soviet leadership thought that this was a prelude to a nuclear war. And in some scenarios, this is how you would do it to catch them by surprise. This is how you would implement a first strike. The exchanges started going back and forth on their networks, and we intercepted them. Interestingly, when Ronald Reagan learned about this, he couldn't believe it. He didn't think that Russia could possibly think that we would attack them first, because that has not been his intention. And it scared him. And it's one of the things that led him in his second term, to become a nuclear abolitionist. You may remember in his second inaugural address, he said we should eliminate nuclear weapons from the face of the earth. And then he went and did something about it. Now, he didn't achieve that goal, but he did achieve remarkable breakthroughs in the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, in his START treaty. And he really broke the back of the arms race, the first treaties that eliminated nuclear weapons, not just limited them. And we've been on a downward course ever since then. So we've gone from 66,000 nuclear weapons in the world, most held by the United States and Russia, down to about 13,000 today, most held by the United States and Russia. Lower levels, dramatic decreases, but it's all stopped. We haven't had a new reduction treaty for 12 years, and there's no talk of any. And so, what you're seeing unfold in these days is a reminder that we might not have been thinking about nuclear weapons, but Putin has.
0: Well, I was going to ask you about that because when he went to the nuclear exercise before the invasion of Ukraine, my immediate interpretation was that he was setting the stage to be prepared to threaten if the West, from his perspective, overreacted to what he saw as a police action. I mean, if you read his speech, which I did this podcast about last week, it's very clear in his speech. He thinks Ukraine is part of Russia. It's a remarkable parallel to the Beijing view that Taiwan is the 19th province and cannot possibly be independent because it's simply part of integral China. Well, he's making the case, look, this is my neighborhood. This is my area. Why are you reacting to me dealing with my own neighborhood? And I think he's probably as much shocked by the unanimity of, and the harshness of the response, of which I think in some ways the most powerful is the denial of airspace. I mean, you literally, as a Russian businessman, can't figure out now how to go west, you know, unless you do it by train or car.
1: Well, I wanted to ask you about this. It's a touch off the nuclear focus, but I was wondering what you make of this, because we've never seen anything like this. You know, the word unprecedented gets bandied about a lot these days, and that's because we've never seen this. For example, this nuclear alert level, this is unprecedented. You have to go back to the 70s maybe to see anything like this. The last time I know that the US or Russia did this was back in 1973 when Richard Nixon brought us to DEFCON 3 during the Yom Kippur War. But again, that was influenced more by his impeachment trials.
0: Look, I talked to Kissinger about that. And Henry said... This is a perfect example of signaling. They were signaling to the Soviets to stay out as the Israelis annihilated the Soviet armed and trained and equipped forces. And the Soviets were very humiliated by the decisive defeat of forces that they had created. And there was a real fear that they were going to have volunteers show up, probably in Syria and Egypt, you know, so you'd actually have Soviet troops. But I don't think either Nixon or Kissinger had any intent of using nuclear weapons. They were just saying, look, we're really serious about this. And frankly, one of the reasons I so much wanted to get you to do this today is what frightens me is our folks aren't worried. It is crazy to have a guy who has 6,000 nuclear weapons. And this was my thought two weeks ago when he did the exercise, because I said my thinking was they had to have planned and thought it through weeks in advance because you can't move those systems in an integrated way without a lot of planning. We couldn't do it, and we're better than they are.
1: So here's the good news, by the way, on nuclear, speaking about moving equipment. We've seen no change in the actual movement of Russian nuclear forces. That is, they're not flushing their mobile ICBMs out of their garrisons. They're not loading bombs on nuclear bombers. We haven't seen any physical change If there's a change at all, as I say, it's just in the command and control structure. And I agree with you also about Biden's response. I understand, meaning at a press conference yesterday, he was asked, Mr. President, should Americans be worried about nuclear war? And on this way out, he just said no. And you understand why he's doing that. He wants everybody to calm down, doesn't want anybody to get unduly worried. And I get that. But I'm with you. We should be worried about this. Not because Putin would intentionally do it now, but because circumstances could get out of control.
0: But also remember, if you're Putin and you're trying to signal us and the American president cavalierly says no, then you think, gosh, what do I have to do to get your attention? And that's when this gets to be really dangerous.
1: Right. So here's what the question I have for you. On the positive side, Biden has not responded in kind. So there's been no nuclear threats to back, there's been no raised alert, so that's all good. Stay calm, move on. And I don't know how you feel, but he's done a remarkable job of uniting the Western alliance. The Western response to the Ukraine war is stronger, NATO is more united than it's ever been. But I'm worried if this is going to work, because what you're seeing is the West engage in unprecedented, that word again, sanctions, diplomatic isolation, all the way from banks to soccer, from yachts to planes to everything. These guys are being squeezed, and it's possible we could bring the Russian economy to the point of collapse, which is an entirely new way of dealing with countries like this. In other words, we're meeting Putin's military offensive with an economic, diplomatic, and political counter-offensive Am I right? Are we seeing something new? Is it possible that this could work?
0: Trevino, who writes under a subscription called Armist rather, wrote a piece yesterday saying this is the cancel culture being carried into international relations and arguing in part that among the Western elites, Putin's conservatism on cultural values makes him a very desirable target and solidifies this sense of, you know, he deserves it, whatever he gets, because he's not just a bad guy in the sense of being corrupt, but he has the wrong social values. And the question is, if this was Venezuela, you could imagine it potentially working. If you're dealing with either any country that has nuclear weapons, the danger of a cancel culture approach is, they do have an option they can decide to cancel you. (laughs) A good friend of mine who's one of the smartest strategists I know literally called me this morning. He said, we had better start thinking about the off-ramp Because if we think we're going to crush Putin and not have a potential nuclear reaction, this is like, if you ask yourself, in late 1944, if Hitler had had nuclear weapons, would he have used them? And the answer is obviously, yeah. And it would never have occurred to him not to use them. Well, if you're Putin and you're isolated, and he was humiliated at the Winter Olympics where they spent $5 billion and people like Obama wouldn't come. And I actually think that there's a plausible case that Crimea was taken in part in reaction to that, that Putin said, look, if I can't join your club, I've got nothing to gain by pretending I'm you. So I might as well be a thug because you're not going to let me in the club anyway. Well, if he gets to a point here where he decides it's personal and that his personal destruction and the legacy of his personal regime is at stake, I don't think we have
1: any notion what he could potentially do. I'm with you on that. We do not want Putin turning to his generals and asking, is Kiev burning? Right? We don't want him to feel that if he's going down, he's taking the whole thing with him. And part of that, and I think your listeners should understand this, is that the existing strategies, the existing doctrines about nuclear weapons sort of encourage this. They pave the way for it. Both Russia and the United States in recent years 10 or more have developed these strategies of integrated deterrence. And the idea was to strengthen deterrence by integrating all our instruments of coercion from economic to conventional to cyber to nuclear so that you would deter a foe at a lower level of conflict because they know that you're willing to go all the way. And you can see the logic of that. The problem is that once you do enter into a conflict like we are now in, well then the fire breaks have been removed. And your strategy would indicate that if you were losing at a lower level, you raise it to the higher level. And if he's losing on the economic front, if the Ukrainian forces continue to fight the way they're fighting, if he tries to occupy and gets bogged down to the bloody, well, he might try to raise it to this nuclear level, either signaling or actually trying to achieve a military victory, or in a spasm of madness and frustration— In a Hitler like moment, it's terrifying. And if we get out of this, we better start rethinking those strategies and start thinking about how we can change them so this never happens again.
0: Well, you know, it's ironic at one level. I was with Rumsfeld in May and June of 2001 trying to think through how to get across to the Indians and the Pakistanis that this is actually not an escalation ladder because there was a real danger that they were going to exchange nuclear weapons.
1: Yes, that's right, over Kashmir.
0: Yeah, and we were trying to think through, since they had not experienced it and since they didn't have the years of having thought about it that we did, how do we get across, and this is, I think, part of what you're saying, which if I'm right, I agree with totally, it's not an escalation ladder because there's a chasm between everything you can do conventionally and the first nuclear weapon. And when you cross that chasm, you have opened up the potential for death on a scale that is potentially civilization ending. And it's a great irony that the only country ever to have used them is the United States. I think it shocked us. And I think as we learned what had happened in Nagasaki and Hiroshima, and we learned how small those weapons were.
1: Yes, one bomb, one plane destroys one city.
0: Right. And now we have much bigger weapons in much greater numbers. As Truman said in 1949, when he was advised that he had to build a hydrogen weapon, and Dean Acheson went to him and said, if the world is so dangerous that we are now going to build a weapon whose only purpose is to destroy an entire city, because you don't need a hydrogen weapon for anything else. He said, shouldn't we design a strategy to minimize the likelihood that we're going to ever use the weapon? And that's where NSC-68 and the Cold War strategy starts. Because Truman says, yeah, that would be cool. Why don't you bring me a strategy so we can never use the damn thing? Because I do have to authorize building it since the Soviets had gotten so much faster at building atomic bombs than we thought they would. So now you're in a situation where you have enough nuclear weapons. And the danger of this, of course, is this is what convinces Iran and North Korea and all sorts of other countries. If you have nuclear weapons, you're in a different level of safety than if you don't. And some people suggested that it was precisely when Gaddafi gave up his chemical weapons and his nuclear program and then was overthrown that a number of other dictators looked and said, "Uh uh-huh, if I don't have this capability, then I can never be truly safe. And that's the impetus both on Iran and in North Korea.
1: Right. I think it's in U.S. national security interest to get rid of these weapons, or at least be marching in that direction to take them out of national security strategies, because we don't need them, you know, we need them to deter someone else from attacking us. But our conventional weapons are the best in the world, we can accomplish all our military missions with conventional weapons. And we want to prevent someone, well, like Putin or another country from using a nuclear shield to protect their aggressive invasions of other countries.
0: Well, and of course, the danger is that the shield becomes a sword.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Just looking at where we are right now, I think there are two things I think that would probably be helpful. One would be to communicate a desire to find a way to end the violence and to do so on terms that would allow us to roll back some of the isolation.
1: Russia's isolation.
0: Yeah, Russia's isolation. Because I think if he sees no end game. Except an absolute test of will, then in the end, at some point, he has got a lot of options that we don't like.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. Sanctions are an incredibly powerful instrument, but they have never forced a country to comply or collapse by themselves. They've always been an instrument to achieve a negotiated settlement. And so that's what you need here. As much as people might want to crush Putin, kill Putin, hope that a palace coup will eliminate Putin, the odds are that none of that's going to happen. And so we have to have a diplomatic off-ramp. We have to have a way for him to get out of this in some face-saving way, feeling that he can preserve his position and his power. So it becomes all the more important to be coming up with suggestions now for what that might be for how we might be able to address some of his legitimate security concerns, and there are some, and also ours, to, in in the course of this, reduce the nuclear danger by, for example, we might be willing to trade removing the 100, 150 tactical nuclear weapons we have in Europe if Putin then reduces his tactical nuclear weapon stockpile. Putin has raised going back into the ban on intermediate nuclear forces, the Reagan Treaty that President Trump left a few years ago and bringing back those kinds of restrictions. We could do that. That would be in our interest. It's in his interest. We got to be able to prepare to give him something that gives him a face-saving way to climb down from this crisis before it spirals out of control.
0: I think that's right. You know, somebody once pointed out that one of the characteristics of democracies is that once they finally get angry, it's really hard to slow them down.
1: (laughs) That's right. Democracies waging war can be brutal. That's
0: right. That's right. And the thing that makes this different than any crisis we've seen is the possession of nuclear weapons. And I think somehow that has to be brought more into the conversation in the next few days and an awareness that there are limits. You know, we want to achieve a certain set of goals, but those set of goals can't, in the end, involve trying to destroy the Russian state or humiliate Putin to a point where, He has no rational alternative, except to create sort of God or Dameron and decide to take us all with him. And I think that that's, particularly given the classic examples in Russian literature and in Russian history, that's more possible than people in nice, happy democracies can believe.
1: Right. And rather than speculating or guessing on what he will do or what his intentions are, we should be focusing a little more on what he can do and what his capabilities are.
0: And then how do we make sure that doesn't happen? Listen, if you don't mind, in a few weeks, I might ask you to come back and rejoin us and discuss where we've gotten to by that point. And I hope that some people in the White House will remember you're out there and decide to talk with you at length. (laughs) They're not likely to call me, but I think they're very likely to call you. And they really need to get a group of people who've thought long and hard about nuclear weapons and sit down and say, okay, how do we deal with the next two or three weeks? And it may be a a one-day-at-a-time dance.
1: That's exactly right. And let me go further. I think they should call you. I think we're at a moment where we're facing these unprecedented threats that are threatening not just our nation, but our way of life, our democracy. And this gets a little overstated sometimes. But it's a moment where we really do need unity across the political spectrum. And so I thank you for having me on. We disagree on a lot, but we agree on this. And we need to have the broadest possible opposition to what Putin is trying to do in the kind of world he's trying to create.
0: Well, listen, thank you for investing so much of your life in understanding what, for most people, is a very arcane, but I think an extraordinarily central topic to the survival of our civilization. And I do hope in a few weeks you will come back and we can hopefully continue this dialogue in a happier way with the world having become a marginally happier place.
1: It would be my pleasure.
0: Thank you to my guest, Joe Cirincione. You can learn more about Putin's nuclear threat on our show page at newtsworld.com. If you've been enjoying Newsworld, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newsworld can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com/newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newsworld.